Hey, are you eating one of those, like, um, freezy pops that comes in a plastic tube? Yeah, and this one's a vodka martini. <laughs> this is a water mar- this is a watermelon lemonade vodka martini. 8% alcohol by volume. Not bad. Mm-mm. I took a couple weeks off the booze, Jared. Well, that's I'm back good. on the sauce tonight. You're in the sauce tonight? Got some uh, very fancy... Uh, I believe this is uh, Charles K. Mondavi and family. I was going to say, I thought it was Robert Mondavi. I didn't know Charles had branched (laughs) off, too. Yeah, this is probably one of the kids. And um, we got a 2017 vintage of Cabernet Sauvignon. Ooh, fancy. Which I actually used to cook. I used it to cook the beef cobbler, and I just had a little bit left over, and that's what I'm drinking. All right. Things are sounding real swanky over there. I'm drinking alcohol out of a plastic tube here. (laughs) And I've got a $6 bottle of cooking wine. (laughs) Ah, that's the kind of class that uh, we've come to cultivate. That's what you come to the compost bin of history for. Mm -hmm. Tubes of alcohol and getting (laughs) lousy on some cooking, Sherry. Yeah. I feel like it's it's been a minute since we've um, chatted, Jared. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of things have happened, huh? You've been through like six different girlfriends. No, no, no. I don't have any girlfriends. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I don't need no woman. Yeah. I climbed a mountain. That was kind of fun. Yeah, that looked fun. Yeah. You blew up um a, an old silo. Well... I was a party to the blowing up. I didn't actually shoot the gun, but it was still pretty. Did you use like Tannerite? Oh yeah, totally. Dude, are you kidding me? This is uh, out by Jefferson, South Dakota. The place is lousy with rednecks. There's (laughs) fucking Tannerite and high-powered rifles on every corner. That's probably the most responsible thing that Tannerite has been used for in Union County in the past year. Yeah, you're probably right about that. Taking down an old structure from a safe distance. It was pretty wicked, man. I just know you can buy it at Walmart. Can you? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Dude, I think he used like 50 pounds of it. It was a, it, There was like a sonic boom. I was hiding behind the cement wall, like up yeah. kind of close to it, at like uh-huh. a 45-degree angle with where the gun was being shot, and I got an awesome that awesome video I sent to you. But yeah. when that thing blew, man, I like it almost knocked the stocking hat off my head. I was probably like 40 feet or 40 yards from it. Oh, man. Yeah, that was quite a percussive blast then, shit. Hell yeah. I'm about to go... That's insane. I'm about to go sift through all the bricks and see what I can salvage. Oh, nice. Yeah, you could get some, like, foundation materials for your small shed. Yeah, totally. I got some, like, masonry hammers from this dude in Sioux City that is, like, an old brick worker, and he was telling me that the old bricks uh, that I'm getting are called, like, clinkers or something like that. He was pretty stoked. He was pretty stoked that I had access to some old clinkers, so... I've just been befriending like seventy plus year old men for the past two weeks. You're you're elbowing into the old man economy, basically. Totally, man. Off. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. My my buddy Olson always says that I have like old man powers. <laughs> yeah, listeners should know that if you're an old man who's ever passed between the area of like <laughs> Sioux City and Sioux Falls, South Dakota and Iowa then you've probably met and talked to jared (laughs) (laughs) could be you know matters what you're getting rid of or what you're trying to get (laughs) 
Well, I actually think that all of this is like a good object lesson in economics. Because economics doesn't have to be framed through some conventional approach of getting a job or extracting revenue from, you know, the land or your employees or whatever, right? I mean, I don't know. It probably has to start there if you don't, like, own anything. Well, but part of having compost is that things are breaking down. And if you can find a way to reuse that, then... Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can you can benefit materially, right? Yeah, like I've alluded to, I'm, like, a de facto scrapper now. Now, I don't, like, do meth and drive a barely functioning Ford pickup, but... Uh... <laughs> you drive a fully functioning Ford pickup. I drive a fully functioning Ford pickup. And yeah, I pretty much find out what people don't want and either take it for free or try to get them to pay me to take it. As long as it's something that I can use. There you go, right? Like uh <laughs> I've been doing you know, gangbusters. Just, but lately. just because Yeah, and just because, you know, you're not just because money isn't necessarily the medium of transaction. Many people would say that's not, you know, that's not part of the real economy, right? Because you're just getting shit that nobody wants or people are paying you to take it. Yeah, exactly. It's not part of the real economy. I don't have to, I don't have to pay taxes when someone like gives me some resources for some labor that I do for them. Well, exactly. But at the same time, the utility of that for you is as good as if you had made $200 or something. Oh yeah, dude. I I don't know if I've mentioned on here, but I've been given like three sheds in the past two weeks that I've disassembled. And now I just have like <laughs> all of this tin and all of these two by fours and like basically all this metal and wood that I could build my own things with or like sell if I wanted to. And yeah. in one case, the guy paid me 50 bucks to take it out of his yard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if you're going to look for like a win-win. But scenario, I mean, you got to have like a pickup and power tools and like knowledge of how to right. use those power tools. Mm hmm. I think that's a good jumping off point, though. So should we, like, introduce the show? Yeah. So this is the compost bin of history. Maybe this is the scrapyard of history this week, <laughs> since we're talking about economics. Yeah, we're all scrappers this week. Yeah, I feel like um, that's actually a, a good analogy, because I think the composter, when they get, you know, when they're out there interacting with the rest of, like, industry and society... They kind of have to become a little bit more of a scrapper, you know? Yeah, well, uh, one of the dudes I talked to at the junkyard the other day was telling me that they had to, like, stop accepting copper from meth heads because, like, they're out, <laughs> like, you know, stealing copper again from people's fucking houses. Well, hey, you know, you gotta you gotta find, find a way to get by. I'm not gonna condemn it. I'm not gonna condone it. <laughs> I'm just saying it's going on. <laughs> Thankfully, I don't have any copper, so... <laughs> yeah jared's not in the copper market right now dude i did uh i did catch my first meth head on compost acres though hey um uh, how do you mean catch well i was just like sitting out there had a campfire going uh my buddy yeah. olson was out there with me and he lives like you know 10 minutes from the place so he's gonna run home grab some bratwurst come back and we were gonna cook dinner and yeah. uh, in like the time he left and should have been back I heard somebody like rustle around in the trees and uh so I thought it was Olsen so I you know shouted out like <laughs> what the hell dude you lost you you've been here how many times now and uh I don't know I ended up walking up upon this uh dude named Darren that uh yeah 
apologized for trespassing and i was like well i mean i don't know if i believe in all that necessarily uh you're gonna tell me a little bit about you you know Uh, i don't necessarily i don't necessarily kick people off for telling the truth but i do kick liars Mm -hmm. out so he told me that he you know smoked a little meth and he was looking for some metal to sell so i pretty much told him i got a bunch of tools down here and like some metal that i don't want people taking but uh you can help yourself to all of the cans and metal in this tree line right here don't come any farther and we we won't have any problems don't bring any friends and uh so he has like noticeably removed some metal from (laughs) the grounds i've i've seen him twice now in the past like seven days so he's cleaning up you know your trash then the stuff that people were leaving out there from before you had the property right yeah totally I don't know what he's doing with it, but he's come back more than once, so. Hey, well, I think that's great. I pretty much told him, you know, don't give me a pro, don't give me a reason to have a problem, and I won't have a problem. Yeah, awesome, man. No, I've been playing Red Dead Redemption two lately, and the idea of you like sitting by a campfire at night, and then you know some uh, some like local meth head comes like scuttering by and you're like what's going on out there yeah he reminds me of seth or whatever from red dead one the dude that's like robin graves oh yeah yeah he ain't hurt nobody you you set out your your uh ground rules right and yeah i don't know i caught some kids out there too after school one day and they like yeah instantly when they saw me they were just apologizing like i'm sorry mister we didn't mean to trespass and i was like yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hold your well what did, i was like what do you mean you're sorry why what'd you do and they're like what no, we're just we're just on your land and i was like oh well who said that's not okay and they were like what <laughs> and i was like you know if you guys want to walk to and from school through here stick to this path don't yeah. tell your friends yeah and we'll be cool well dude so um when i went hunting yesterday i actually had like the inverse experience where I got yelled at by the landed gentry. Oh, no shit. And not for like any kind of severe act of trespassing, but rather because I used what I'm 100% sure is a public access road for a public property that crossed 15 feet, like a 15-foot strip of private property. You monster. I know. He said that he owned the property, but unless his name is Double K Hunting Ranch LLC, I don't think he owns the property. So... I got yelled at for crossing 15 feet of basically just a strip of weeds. Did you tell him to call and, the cops? Uh, I I just basically ignored him. I mean... Oh, yeah, there you go. I had already hunted the area, and then he's just, like, yelling at me on my way out. Oh, and yeah. I was like, he left a note on my windshield. I just took it off and threw it on the ground. Yeah, I've got a you couple know. of those before. <laughs> it won't be the... It's not the first. It won't be the last for me, oh, for yeah. sure. I've got a note or two saying, like, what part of no trespassing don't you understand? Well, but dude, so uh, I pulled, I I pulled the LLC, I pulled the paperwork. Oh Jesus, dude, it's worse. It's worse than than you could even imagine, to be honest. Like it's some trash future bullshit. That property, that fifteen foot span of weeds, uh, is owned by an LLC that's run out of Denver, downtown Denver. Actually, a building that's gotten smashed up by the rioters. So Fuck I'm happy yeah. for that. You should have just, as soon as that guy started yelling at you, you should have just started taking a piss. Oh yeah. No, I, <laughs> but yeah, basically it's it's run by 
like this consortium of three people who work for like multifamily lending schemes in downtown Denver. Awesome. That basically are are running like apartment properties, condos, all around like the major metropolitan areas of the American West. Hell just yeah, ruthlessly dude. extracting extracting rent from the working poor. And they're just like sinking it into that money hole and paying goon squads to run people off the public land next to it because they drove over a 15 foot patch of weeds. My favorite type of people. Dude, I've, I've done so much trespassing in a technical sense in my day, but most, most landowners don't care. Like, yeah, I don't know, give a shit. Don't fuck yeah. anything up. If you're not doing bad stuff. Yeah, man. Have at it. You know, a, a local landowner in Brush, Colorado wouldn't give a shit if you drove over a 15-foot patch of weeds. But because, you know, you're dealing with, like, abstracted levels of global economy there, of course, they've got a, someone whose whole job it is is just to, like, puff himself up and hassle people, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You like, should have just fucking whipped out. You should have just started taking a piss <laughs> as soon as he... Oh, I should have, yeah, yeah. It's been like, what, this this little strip right here? This is where I'm not supposed to be right. on? <laughs> but dude it's 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 back to you know the fucking baron's land and ironically it's called baron properties oh god um, and then they've got they've got the sheriff of nottingham out there chasing off the peasants hell yeah and dude. um that that's that's economics for you man like uh that's what it gets you wow. so i don't know why you got to bring politics into a simple trespassing story <laughs> I'm James. I'm the host of Compost Benefistry. <laughs> and I'm Jared. I'm a guy that starts peeing as soon as he gets yelled at by a strange person. <laughs> uh, well, and as we know, all property law really should be rooted upon who, pee- who peed on it last. Exactly. Know? I think the dog's got it right when it comes to property. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is your strip of weeds? Well, how about now? Yeah, we'll see about that. See, I just peed on that. (laughs) (laughs) This is your Alamo Cenotaph? I think it's Ozzy Osbourne's Alamo Cenotaph now, (laughs) sir. (laughs) Wait a minute. So, (laughs) under dog law, Ozzy Osbourne didn't get banned from San Antonio. He actually owned San Antonio. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so this week we're going back to Compost Bin of History University for another edition of Anti-Environmental 101. I think we got to pause here so I can load up my vape, Jared. Okay, I need to do other things. You got to get your pipe. I mean, your uh, tobacco. Yeah, I I found a pipe wrench in the ditch the other day. I was pretty pumped about it. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> hey, what was going on last night, dude? I'm sorry that I flaked out on you like that. Oh, it's all right. I just got in another big ass fight with my boss, but it was pretty like comical. Yeah. Yeah, he got mad at me for for having the wrong tone with him. Oh man, your own little spat with the landed gentry. Yeah, well, I don't know. Fuck, he was like, he was just like down there in the dark, in the cold, like kind of fucking shit up. And uh, I basically said, you know, do what I tell you or else go home. Because you told me 
like you were going to start listening to me when I told you to go home. Yeah. And he told me that I was getting smart with him and he didn't appreciate it. And I was like, you know what? Frankly, uh, it's like 830 at night. It's 20 degrees and windy. And I'm like out here doing all of the work. So like, you know, I'm here doing the work that needs to be done. If you want me to act like I'm thrilled about it, then you better like, I don't know. This is not the... I'm not the person you must think I am. <laughs> oh, and he tried to tell me that I owed him $800 for the pallet thing that I thought was over with. <laughs> well, he, he told me that I owed this Jose guy $800. Holy fuck. And uh, so I pretty much told no, him... He's just shorting Jose $800. Well, I called Jose to talk to Jose about it, and he didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. He said Doug's crazy. Seems to be the consensus. Yeah. But, yeah. I don't know, he tried... He was, like, showing me all of the things that he bought with this, like, underhanded pallet money that doesn't exist on paper. Like, he, he was like, you like that forklift over there? I was like, yeah, it's a lot nicer than the one we used to have. He's like, yeah, well, I bought that with that pallet money. And I was like, let me just stop. Let me just stop you right there, Doug. Are you going to fuck that forklift, Doug? Yeah, totally. I was like, let me just stop you right there. And then he was, like, trying to tell me that I owed this dude money. And I was like, well, you know what? If anyone owes Jose money, that's between you and Jose. Because we already had this discussion, and uh, we made our deal. So I don't know why you're wasting me and your time right now with this. And he got all pissed off, saying that I was being disrespectful and had a smart mouth. And I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> what about it? He's he's just is like so demented though that whatever like uh, oh I mean it's all about a control thing he the reason he got all pissed off about any of it it was because I basically told him what to do I don't know it kind of sounds like Biden on that call like screaming at the leaders of the NAACP like I'm all you've got so I I heard like that that <laughs> happened I didn't hear the context of any of it but I'm sure it's worse than I could imagine like. <laughs> He's probably like trying to tell him, like, listen, Jack, uh, I've been black for 33 years <laughs> or something crazy like that. Actually, the only way to be black is to be a white senator from Delaware. Oh, man. I do. I love that corn pop bit, dude. That's got to be some of the best political speech in the last hundred years. Good thing old fucking Sleepy Joe is there to put him in line. I know. Because bad people are a thing and they should be punished harshly. That's why when the banks lose everyone's money and commit a bunch of corruption, they don't face any penalties. Because oh, that's man. a good that's a good thing to do. Well, like, what would the classical economic theory say about banks doing bad things, right? Well, it can't happen because banks are moral actors and uh, they just exist to make sure everyone has access to prosperity. Well, they would say that they should fail. The classical economics guys would say if a bank does bad things and loses everyone's money, then the bank isn't a bank anymore. Right? I mean, yeah, sure. Until the bank actually is failing and they're like, oh, fuck, we can't let this happen. <laughs> Ah, and then that's a different stage, right? Like when well, suddenly you're like, oh, the banks are failing and we can't let them fail. That's a transitory moment there, right? Uh, no, that can't happen. <laughs> we still should work off those old theories that completely are equipped <clears throat> to deal with what's going on in the current financial situation. <laughs> 
Or better yet, we should listen to some people from Chicago from the 50s. So about that current financial situation. Lines going up, baby. Actually, we had a we had a, a listener comment that I think is pertinent to this and should should help to set up this episode that we're going to do on what I'm calling economics for the radical composter. All right. Who wrote in? Uh, this is from Cadoodles. Oh, okay. Cadoodles, by the way, host of the Purple Palette podcast. Yeah. Uh, we don't know her at all, though. I don't know if she wants her brand associated with... Uh, Probably not. Per- with perverts like us. Are but- we allowed to even reveal that she's a girl? Sorry, Cadoodles. Or sorry, oh, sorry. She's, a, she's a woman. She's a lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, I haven't had enough. <laughs> I'm not that drunk yet. It's not Tom Jones time. <laughs> Perhaps later. So... <laughs> So, uh, Cadoodles wrote in on our Clean Water Act Part 4 episode on wetlands versus United States as we were kind of talking about how... <laughs> we should have titled that United States versus wetlands, probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yeah. <clears throat> but we were talking about how value was first uh, prescribed to the environment with the environmental movement in the 1970s how that kind of moved into market-based solutions in the 1990s. And with the deregulation of markets and the environment, since then, things have been kind of spinning out of control with climate change, deforestation, water pollution. Obviously, water pollution is kind of the big one that we were talking about in that series. Yeah, but I mean, those those are all connected. You can't separate anything out there. I mean, to an extent, yeah, right? Like... Because of the way that the environment is valued, in a sense. Yeah. All those problems are the result of the same system. Right. Yes, exactly. And so I think this is what Cadoodles is kind of talking about in this comment. Slash question. Which is, how do we get people to see the value in wetlands, not just in intrinsic value as nature and an ecosystem, but also like there is value to humans and our needs too? But let's but sure, let's just pave them over and yeet to Mars. Well, I think the problem that she's having is she doesn't realize that nothing has intrinsic value when the market is involved. There's no such thing. Right. I think that I think that that's the question that we need to talk about is like how is value prescribed, right? <clears throat> like usually through money. Yes. And I think what she's kind of getting at here is that, you know, with wetlands, we're trying to just put a dollar value on them instead of an ecosystem value. Like by saying that, you know, something like clean water, you can put a price on that, renders something that is invaluable, valuable, right? And that's a massive problem. And that's a massive problem because then that basically paves the way for environmental destruction. Yeah, it's like saying, you know, you can't murder people versus you can't murder people unless you have $25,000. Yeah, as we saw with like the Rapanos case, which I was re-listening to today. But I think you said about that case, Jared, which is really enlightening, was that even though he technically lost, he still won because he fought it for 25 years, made millions of dollars on all of his real estate investments. Yeah. And, you know, oh, he has to pay like some, some fees, pay his lawyers, but he still gets to undo this like, you know, this Clean Water Act precedent. Yeah. It doesn't it's... make any difference to him, right? It's why, like, uh, 
I mean, I guess Trump cares what like Stephen Colbert and fucking John Oliver says because Trump is a insane moron. But like Mitch McConnell sure as hell doesn't. You can say whatever you want about him, make him look like a fool. He's still getting what he wants. So that's all he cares about. Right. So if we're going to actually like I, I feel like this is a challenge from Cadoodles in some way. Well, I'm a socialist. I'm lazy. I don't really respond to challenges. <laughs> well, I guess the challenge for all leftists in a like real economic sense right now is if there's going to be some like better stage than capitalism that's kinder to the environment and produces more human value in terms of, you know, I guess uh, real utilitarian value, like the greatest good for the greatest number of people, which is obviously not capitalism. Because people are miserable and poor and starving. Yeah, well, it all defend. It all depends on how you define people. Because as long as corporations are technically people, I don't know what you said might <laughs> be a little different. Yeah, we need to talk about the economy. We need to talk about why corporations get to act the way they do, and that basically means we have to talk about economics. So for this one, you might be able to tell we're a little bit more level-headed. It's because economics is basically like. Scientology, essentially. Well, economics is not political economy. Economics is the study of capitalism. Right. And the and the cheerleading of capitalism. The cheerleading of capitalism. <clears throat> and and basically what I'm saying is that a lot of what we're gonna talk about <laughs> is going to be stuff that is has no grounding in reality. Economics is lying for fun and profit. <laughs> right. So in our first anti-101 episode we were talking about ethics and uh, i was actually playing at cross purposes in that episode because while we were recording that we were also doing a basic critique of neoclassical economic theory which is the underpinning of our modern economy and to explain why we're just going to look briefly at the three central assumptions of modern economic theory and then we'll talk about that kind of in light with what we discussed last time. So the first of those is that people have rational preferences between outcomes that can be identified and associated with values. Strong, strong evidence for that one in 2020. <laughs> right. <laughs> Clearly, that's reasonable. Yeah, like you can think about even something like your vote in an economic sense, right? And there's very little rationality, I think, at play in that. Um, and certainly the, the outcomes are incredibly hard to identify. A lot of this stuff just assumes like a static state. It's like, oh, if things never change, then this is what should happen. Well, But obviously things change. <clears throat> That'll give you a little hint about uh, who created and believes all this shit. Uh, right. People that want everything to stay the same. Yeah, yeah, because it benefits them. Though. Right. And, you know, one thing we talked about last time was that when you look at things as an ecosystem value, people don't even understand the way that things like biodiversity, you know, the water cycle, uh, the nitrogen cycle affects their daily life and health, right? Yeah. Those real values are extremely hard to, like, pin down monetarily and associate with, like, real world cost. Yeah, but those are abstract things. You can't, like, see that really. Exactly. Unless, That's why... unless you've been taught to have the right eyes, you don't see that. <laughs> right. You and I see that type of thing. Yeah. 
but mo- but even l- let's frame it in terms of like just a totally mundane economic activity like you're trying to buy a breakfast cereal right like how can you have a rational preference between outcomes that can be identified and associated with values if you yeah. have 80 different kinds of breakfast cereal to choose from even if you're just trying to buy whole bran or something <clears throat> like there's still 18 different kinds you yeah, know. and how are you supposed to tell which one has the most amount of residual pesticides in it? Right. Are you going to do the test yourself? Like, are you yeah. going to get out your chemistry kit and be like, oh, this one actually has 17 grams of whole oat fiber per ounce or something like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, are you even going to know that, like, breakfast cereal is one of the most polluted foods you can eat? <laughs> right. Like, um, <laughs> Do people know that? so basically like this stuff just like falls apart at the slightest prodding is what i'm saying but this is what economics is built upon well okay Um, have you you ever tried to quit smoking (laughs) you're really capable of like rational behavior when you're addicted to something exactly yeah and you know things like methamphetamine which we mentioned earlier what's rational for a meth head is completely different than what's rational for you know the ceo of chase bank yeah, right. See the Kaiser Reich. <laughs> <laughs> That's like where those two like cross. You get the Kaiser Reich because <laughs> they were lousy with math, man. <laughs> All right, here's here's the second central <laughs> assumption of neoclassical or modern economic theory. <laughs> Rule two of economics: meth is bad usually. <laughs> usually unless you're trying to invade france in 22 hours yeah yeah, yeah. that's just economics it's hard to understand (laughs) all right here's here's the second central assumption which is that individuals maximize utility and firms maximize profits and jared you're a case example of why the first part of that isn't true (laughs) as you've said here on the podcast before you're not seeking to maximize utility for your little compost acreage. Well, it depends on your definition of utility. Again, that's a great point. You know, I am maximizing its utility for my ideology. It's just that mine does not conform to what you're talking about right now. Yeah, they're talking about what your boss had said to do, which was to like build a truck depot out there and yeah. develop it and get condos and oh that would definitely make me more money it would destroy the land that i am trying to protect from being destroyed but right right but again the matter is of perspective yeah you know i could build the truck depot though and make a bunch of money for 20 years and then go buy more land and then just like right totally discard this piece of land and go to a different one right yeah and then do it again um, if i want which to. you're not you're obviously not doing though, so you're not maximizing that type of yeah. utility. So I'm a terrible, um, <clears throat> I'm a one of those lazy, unproductive souls. Well, and the <laughs> second part of this, I think, is also obviously untrue, which is that firms maximize profits because corporations do dumb shit that loses them money all the fucking time. Yeah. Why do you think like, I get so <laughs> angry with my boss all the time? <laughs> Why am I working hard to save us money when you just go and waste it on dumb things? Like, shouldn't I just completely... Just getting a new forklift so you can fuck it? Like, come on. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it is a sexy forklift. And, you know, the last forklift didn't put out that well. But, you know, we didn't need it. 
But yeah, so firms maximizing profits. Other of machinery. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I don't I don't see it in practice. To be honest, so. well, if um, you're doing something like that, you probably don't want anyone to see you practicing it. <laughs> All right. So and then here's the third part of the three central assumptions of neoclassical economic theory, which is that people act independently on the basis of full and relevant information. <laughs> which i would say is never true is that's just like never even <laughs> I mean, partly true right, let's you see can't if we can think you just of a can't know where, everything <laughs> let's think see if we can think of a scenario where that might be true man i mean i guess if you were trying to decide between oh no never mind like i mean just like deciding between ketchup and mustard in your own fridge i guess I get, yeah, but even then, like, there's still all those variables that you can't account for, like the manufacturing methods. Like, you're just, you know, making a big guess there, right? Like, to use your thing, like, you're not going to be able to know how much pesticide is involved in growing those mustard seeds and tomato plants, right? Uh, legally, no, you're not going to be able to know that. Yeah, exactly. Even something like that. I'm trying to think like even if you're just trying to decide between like two, you know, brands of cereal again. I mean, I'm just trying to well, come I'll up tell you with what, a scenario Jared. where this might be true since it's so like patently not true. Well, maybe it comes down to like, you know, picking wild vegetables or mushrooms or something. You can act independently on the basis of full and relevant information if you've done your research and homework and you're, <clears throat> you know, like, I know what a morel mushroom looks like. Okay, right? you're, so you're saying me finding, like, maitake mushrooms is yeah. proving Adam Smith right. Well, no, this is, so this is neoclassical economic theory. This isn't even Adam, this is after Adam Smith, dude. Oh, this is like Ricardo or somebody? This is more like Bentham and Mill and then... Oh, okay, um, the people that wanted to exterminate everyone. Right, the utilitarians. Yeah. And I, I hate that I used that word earlier because I'm going to shit all over utilitarians. Well, yeah, that's what I was wondering where you bit. were going with that earlier. But Well, I'm <clears throat> saying that real utilitarianism is very different than the way it's proposed, which yeah. is basically, like you said, like U- genocide. Utilitarianism <laughs> is fucking Thanos, dude. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but we'll we'll talk about that as well. And so here's the problem, right? This is all bullshit, but... From these three assumptions, neoclassical economists have built a structure to understand the allocation of scarce resources among alternative ends, which is basically saying that there's limited resources and they can only go to certain places. And in fact, understanding such allocation is often considered the definition of economics. Here's where like, you know, the Kool-Aid man like punches in through the wall, you know, like ruins everyone's like party. Because what if the resources aren't that scarce? What if, like, fossil fuels, they're actually all over the fucking place, and they're actually killing us? Because then, if your whole understanding of economics is scarce resources allocated to alternative ends, you're just going to kill yourself if you're just practicing economics that way. Or, as Cadoodle said, you're going to have to yeet to Mars and then do the same thing over again there, right? Yeah, well, that's wishful thinking because people are not going to fucking live on Mars. <clears throat> you yeah, can't even so, you cannot stay in space for a year without your bones just no. disintegrating. Yeah, <laughs> you can't well, fucking live at, on Mars. 
as I heard from, well, there's your problem. Elon Musk's whole idea for going to Mars is just to like set up a natural gas refinery there based on zero evidence that there's natural gas on Mars. <laughs> Elon Musk is just like a real life indie game where like you are tasked with destroying your home planet so that you can go get natural gas and like have sex with aliens on Mars. And then you just yeah, become like so. the king of Mars and Earth doesn't exist anymore. So no one knows about your crimes. Yeah, I you know, it's from those three central assumptions that you get to Elon Musk, right? Because from those basic assumptions of neoclassical economics comes a wide range of theories around economic activity, such as profit maximization. If you think that profit should be maximized, that's because of those three central assumptions. Basically, the fundamentals of economics, which are obvious lies, as we've just established, necessitate climate change, the despoiling of planet Earth, and the migration of the wealthy to and extractive corporations to other planets. And so I think it necessitates a serious relooking at how we allocate value, which the whole species needs to do, but we're going to attempt to do here on this podcast. And I don't know, as far as I can tell, we might have some like original contribution to make to economic canon. <laughs> well, I'm going to make zero claims about that, but... You have famously said on this podcast, Jared, that you understand nothing about economics. Exactly. And I stick by that. <laughs> We're going to put that to the test today. All right. Well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see just how much I don't know. I don't know trivia, but I have a pretty decent understanding of what goes on. I think, listener, I think you're going to be surprised by how much Jared knows about economics. Not because he's got, like, book learning. But he's been schooled by the streets, the mean streets of economics. Hey, man, I grew up on a fucking farm. Dude, you worked at a Blockbuster. <laughs> I was the fucking shift manager of a Blockbuster, dude. <laughs> at 18, man, I was in charge it. of people that were like twice my age, and they were fucking pissed about it. When you're picking your economics team, Jared is not going to be like at the back of the squad. I'm just <laughs> saying. I think you're going to at least be a mid to top, top tier pick. I'm not going to be at the back. The I'm going to be in draw. the corner fucking... Like giggling and making stupid jokes. <laughs> I'm gonna be making fun of the o the other team openly over the mic, like as I'm. <laughs> That's what we're gonna do here. We're I'm gonna, gonna make find. Fun I'm gonna find the one that thinks he's the smartest, and I'm just gonna fuck with him. <laughs> so it's important to understand that the study of economics is just an epiphenomena of human biology. What do I mean by that? You asking me? Yeah, like what does what does it mean to study economics? Um, well, it's to study the natural um, behavior of humans. Yeah, in a sense, because basically we're just apes, right? We're all apes. We just move stuff around and we interact with each other. We're a very social species of ape. We're just animals reacting to stimuli. Exactly. That's the materialist look at economics. And all of the stuff that we call economies, like the abstraction of uh, money, the movement of capital, banks, assets, all this kind of stuff. I mean, if you read stuff just... about like Micah Riza, sometimes they use like the metaphor, the economy of the like forest or the economy of... Well, yeah. You had said like the internet of the forest or yeah, something. Yeah, totally. Economies are just the exchange of like resources or goods or 
the exchange of things, the movement of objects. Right. And so when you say that you're studying economics, you're basically studying a meta phenomenon, right? Like basically this is something that occurs organically. And then you're trying to look at it and say, let me try and fit some rules around this thing. That's just apes moving shit around and talking to each other. Right. Yeah. So therefore, as with ethics, which we discussed last time, economics is extremely subjective and basically begets us to constantly question assumptions and conventional takes and historically has been extremely biased towards uh (laughs) somebody's current lot right the people with all the economics tend to get to be the ones who say what economics is it's the damnedest thing you know none of those great uh, economics thinkers none of them were like poverty stricken or anything like that Right. It's uh, it's amazing what you might think about the economy when your entire family is in high finance. So so what I'm saying is is that we're kind of walking into fantasy land here. And if this stuff seems confusing to you and if it doesn't make sense and you're sitting Which there feeling nuts, like Jared. Which is nuts because like when people hear the word <laughs> fantasy, you think like, yeah, fun, imaginative, exciting. <laughs> no, economics is the exact fucking opposite of that. It is the most boring fairy tale you can imagine. Yeah, that's why I compared it to Scientology at the top is because like a lot of this is just Adam Smith 200 years ago said, oh, you know, the economy is controlled by an invisible hand. And then everyone was like, oh, invisible hand, invisible hand. You can't do anything. You got to let the invisible hand do it. You know, like it's no wonder that Protestants like fucking went whole hog on this. Yeah, exactly. It embodies like the same type of abstraction that Protestantism. Well, it just replaces god with the market right in protestantism it's just you and god and in the capitalism it's just you and the market yeah and if you do everything else is immaterial if you do moral things the market will shine upon you and reward you that's what they say right yeah with extra slaves (laughs) next year (laughs) at least when it was being written we can't have slaves now but uh but yeah, what I'm saying though is if you're listening to us talk about this stuff and you're like saying, this doesn't make any sense to me, that's not a deficit on your part or ours. Okay. That's because this stuff isn't supposed to make sense. It's like they grind it into you until you're just like worn down and you're like, you accept it. Yeah. It's, it's like, like a slug ever, going down your throat. Have you ever tried to understand the stock market and just realize like it's all just full of bullshit jargon that's designed to be confusing? Yeah. Absolutely. Because the stock market is not that hard to understand, but if you fucking, like, open a book that's trying to teach you about the stock market, it's going to be so full of, like, so many bullshit, just terms, and... Yeah. It's going to... It's, like, obscurant on purpose, I swear to God, so that they can make people go to school for, like, six years to understand it. Right, and people do make money off of that stuff, but Lots the people who make money off of it are making it off of the people who don't know shit about it and are like tricked into investing and the people who are just, you know, the, the poor, the poor besought employees, right? Like just the laborers. Like it's why there's so many people trying to teach yoga right now or like teach you how to teach yoga classes. There you go. So many podcasts about podcasting, right? Yeah. What I want to make the point here is that the study of economics has little to do with the actual function of economies. As seen by the comments made by every Fed chair when there's a horrific <laughs> like downturn. And you right. like realize how either clueless they are or that they're just liars. 
as I was thinking about this, I think you should like when you think of the Fed chairman, you should think of like the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean like, they used to be the same, the same guy job. back in the eighteen hundreds, probably. <laughs> I mean, basically Andrew Jackson, except for he hated central banks. Right. So what we're going to talk about here is just a theoretical prism through which real-world material events are interpreted and discussed. But it is not real. What we're talking about, basically, here in well, the, isn't it here though? About isn't it like minutes. sort of real, like Jesus is real because enough people believe, so it's real. Oh, this is like symbols again. This is like Ozzy pissing on that thing. Exactly. Exactly. This is uh, the economy is like symbols overtaking material yeah. reality as it exists right now. The economy is just rich people pissing all over everyone instead of just Ozzy pissing on one thing. That's a good. That's a good way of putting it. So I wanted to also say though, conversely, the study of economics has a tremendous impact on how actual material resources are allocated, and therefore leads to lots of real world horrors like climate change and oil spills and deforestation and your poisoned drinking water over there, Jared. Or just a bunch of Dutch people spending way too much fucking money on tulips <laughs> and it destroying their economy, because that's also a thing that happened. Before we actually like delve into crazy land here, I wanted to talk a little bit about like what is material economics. As we've kind of just alluded to, most of what we talk about here as quote unquote economics emerged simply as a justification for the expansion of colonialism, the industrialization of human labor, and the reorientation of society from serving monarchs to states and then to corporations. When we talk about economics, we're just basically doing the, the heavy lifting for 200 years of, of history. Yeah, it's sort of just like empires like reproducing themselves. Yeah. It started out by like justifying the empire spread, and now it's like justifying these corporations that are basically little mini empires. Yeah, you have to keep sending wool to sub-Germanic Gaul, because how else are they going to be able to keep their, their guys warm in the wintertime, right? So you have to keep that outpost in sub-Germanic Gaul so that you can keep your business afloat. It's uh, really just a timeless story. Right. So to put it another way, the cynical take will always be th the correct one. If you want the too-long-didn't-read version of economics, basically it's like the dude says. It's all Bitch. goddamn fake, man. It's like Lenin said. You look for the person who will benefit, and, uh, uh, you know... Uh, I am the walrus. You know, you'll, uh, uh, you know what I'm trying to say. I am the walrus. Uh, yeah, as Glenn Beck always says, follow the money. Hey, you know what? That's another thing, is that conservatives often do a better job at, like, understanding basic economics than, than the libs do. Well, of course they do, but I mean, they're also <laughs> evil, so they twist it. <laughs> I mean, basically... <laughs> <laughs> they know they know just they know just enough to either completely misunderstand it or know how to get people to do things that don't benefit them yeah like trump was trying to get them to do two thousand dollar stimulus checks but his own aides were talking him down because they're like no yeah. like you can't you can't give people that kind of money yeah like, because then they'll figure out they're that gonna you get ideas give people that kind of money <laughs> and like all this shit is fucking stupid and, like, we could just pay people enough to live. But I'm saying that Trump's, like, you know, 
root, you know, lizard brain conservative economic impulse was actually the correct one. Yeah, his dementia accurately like pointed out the problem and the solution, but then his dementia forgot like, oh shit, I'm the person that's going to be paying for this, me and my friends, because we have all the money. Yeah, he almost did a president thing and then, nope. Well, he he almost did an (laughs) idealized version of what we think the president does. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm totally in fairyland here. And that's the thing is we're going to spend so much time in fairyland in this episode. I'm kind of excited, though. You know how they say, like, when times are tough, you got to engage in some escapism. I think I'm going to. Oh, I think I'm going to yeah. start believing economics, actually, because that might help me. <laughs> yeah, man. There you go. This is this is going to be like the you know, what's the Christmas season? This is like the the Natalia, the yeah. the birth of economics that we're talking yeah, this about. This is today. a very important uh, consumer economy time. Just as some asshole born around two thousand years ago had an entire set of traditions and cultures rerouted to exist around him, and now has been like sublimated by right wing nativism throughout much of the Western world. Also, economics kind of the same thing but but first let's talk about like what is what is the real economics not just for humans but for any living thing right like if we're gonna just say like people aren't particularly special we're just animals or plants or organisms what what do we have in common with everything else in terms of economics and it's all about metabolism which is uh our net energy exchange okay that's why you have to eat food so that you can run your body's processes and continue to live. That's the economics of being a living thing, right? It's balancing your consumption with your growth. And what happens when you don't balance consumption and growth as a living thing with your metabolism? If you have an energy deficit, you starve to death. And if you have an energy surplus, you get too fat and get eaten by a leopard, right? That's the system that we evolved under, right? And that's something that happens in other organisms as well. That's why I stay the hell away from leopards. (laughs) But what I'm pointing out here is that the way that modern economics functions in terms of surplus, maximize profit is totally out of sync already with just what our own bodies do in terms of energy taken in and energy expended right like you don't want to maximize your your calorie intake in fact you want to kind of do the opposite of that you want to heavily regulate it if you can right so within our bodies as we use that energy we use it in two different kinds of reactions which are ones that are called exergonic and intergonic reactions and Exergonic would be like uh, you shooting the the tannerite, right? It involves a net release of energy into the environment, like an explosion, okay? And then endergonic reactions are those that synthesize like more complicated molecules, and so they build things, like um, photosynthesis is a good example of that. Are you with me, Jared? <laughs> yes. We're not even in fantasy land yet. No, we're, we're mean, still firmly in science. I definitely couldn't tell you what either of those mean right now, but yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you think EXX, that's the explode, right? Yeah. 
and endo that's that's like your growth right okay so in our bodies though we couple those two types of reactions together we couple exergonic energy release reactions to endergonic energy consuming reactions and that's how you basically use atp uh to break down and then charge other cellular processes that's pretty much universal for all all organisms. That's that's the the economics of life is that you want to balance your your intake with your growth and you want to use all of that energy expansion with growth. Like any energy that you take in you want to use eventually to grow, right? And now, then what about, but eventually uh, you die. Yeah, but no, I mean, you might want to pick up some parasites though so they can like suck off a bunch of the excess nutrients. Yeah, well, those parasites are their own organisms operating on the exact same calculus, right? They're doing the same thing that you're doing. And for you, you might say reasonably that, you know, you need to get rid of those parasites because they're impairing your energy exchange. Yeah, right? but they're thrilled about the situation. Yeah, definitely. I'm I mean, yeah, I'm not I'm not trying to ascribe any kind of value here. I'm just saying that, you know. Oh, I might be. That in terms of, you know, all living things, that's, we're all parasites in that way. And that we all need to take energy from other things. Plants at least can do it just from sunlight, which is nice, right? Good for them. And because of that, they can live a lot longer and do a lot more cool stuff than animals can. I don't know, man. Can plants do a backflip? Well, I'm, there's some that definitely can, I would say. Yeah. Like a tumbleweed? <laughs> fuck you got me <laughs> all right proceed <laughs> but yeah the thing is is that because of the second law of thermodynamics entropy <laughs> will always get you in the end right everything is breaking down everything's becoming more chaotic and eventually no matter how many endergonic processes you can do you can live to be 110 years old um, but you're still gonna die just like even plants that might live for thousands of years will still die. It might be because environmental conditions catch up with them eventually. But metabolism is the best you've got until you croak. Whether you're a larval parasite in Jared's bloodstream or a you know thousand-year-old sequoia, um, the reaper comes for all. And so you gotta you gotta balance your your energy intake with your energy expended <coughs> and you don't want to get eaten by a leopard yeah right and remember to not fear the reaper honestly that's that's what real economics is is just for any individual any organism not just humans because we're special that's that's economics all right are you ready to learn about why humans are special and actually are the gods of nature and science i'm so ready i'm a very ego driven <laughs> individual so yes <laughs> tell me why i am awesome yeah, why larval parasites and Irish and all those other, you know, uh, sub race sub races um, don't have the same God given economic freedoms that you do. Oh yeah, lay it on me. A good Scots English person. <laughs> One of the chosen ones. All right, so we're gonna just kind of jump into things here with classical economics and value theory and distribution theory. So this comes around in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And 
I think it's good to ask ourselves what was going on in Europe in the late 1700s and early 1800s. All right. Did we still believe in humors or did we develop germ theory yet? Uh, germ theory was kind of coming around in this time. This is like during the Enlightenment. Okay. Right? This is the economic enlightenment that we're, right. that we're so talking people about. Have really got the, people really understand the natural world right now. Well, they're they're really horny for their European insight about the natural world. Hey, right? what's Belgium doing right like, now? Like, um, yeah, so I was going to say, like, Darwin's going around, like, telling native peoples that actually that plant has a fancy Latin name. And um, Belgium is heading down to the Congo. They're saying, oh, hey, like, I don't know if you guys knew this, but these people that live here have too many arms. (laughs) We should do something about that. Like, you guys probably didn't know this, but actually we're like we're like in charge here now. And so you need to go get ivory for us and we're going to kill half of you. (laughs) That's what Belgium was up to. And the other half of you are going to die from your living conditions. Right. But yeah, so all of this stuff, when we talk about classical economics, is basically simultaneous with the rise of nationalism and colonialism in Europe. And so this is just like whitewashing a lot of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, we mentioned Adam Smith and David Ricardo earlier. These guys were both British people and they were living in this time period. And as British people who were able to like write economic theory, you can pretty much pretty well guess what class of society they were from. Yeah. Who would, who would be their analogs today? Like Anderson Cooper? Anderson Cooper isn't really like coming up with ideas, though. Yeah, I but I mean, say, okay, if, if Anderson... Like one of those neocons. If Anderson Cooper was like more insufferable. In terms of just like the attitude. I I'm guess, saying that's the class of people, though. Like, oh, yeah. Like the very the very heights of the global reserve economy. Yeah. Because this time period, what we're talking about, Britain was the U.S. Britain ruled the The Spanish world. Empire was out. At this point, and the British Empire was the empire that the sun never set upon during this time period. And so basically, these British economics guys wrote the book on economics. And um, the main two were Adam Smith and David Ricardo. Yeah, all because people were starting to feel guilty about some of the things Britain was up to around the world. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) That's it. It's just a justification for colonialism. Nobody had written this before because people just didn't give a fuck before. But it is it is kind of a, a big moment in human history, though, because oh, this is huge. kind of coming about with the rise of the nation state. Like for a long time, people associated a country with its king or emperor or whatever. Right. Crusader kings mentality basically ruled the world up until this time period. And it was absurd and it wasn't great. But <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know if things improved after it. Yeah, I'm not sure it's gotten any better. Um, but <laughs> if you were Native American, uh, it definitely didn't make things better for you. Right. So a- as these ideas of like European nationhood are coming about, yeah, people are seeking to justify and explain you know, the, the economies that are just occurring naturally as a result of expansion. I mean, because of these people's decisions to get super fucking rich. Yeah. Right. Well, no, you have to do it. There's, there's no other way to, well, let's see, let's see what Adam Smith and David. Isn't Ricardo that why say. it doesn't really matter 
what's natural and what's not <laughs> doesn't matter so what they say is that <laughs> market economies are self-regulating systems governed by their own laws of nature around the production and exchange of goods and that's, I love that's it. basically the invisible hand. I love it when entities govern themselves. That's always great. <laughs> right. So what he's saying is that it is, it's just arbitrary bullshit, right? But basically the way he's saying it makes it seem like it isn't. Yeah. He's like Barack Obama where he talks real good while he tells you these awful things we're going to go do. Yeah. It makes yeah. you feel good about these bad things we're going to do. Yeah. And so, but what he says when he says that, like, you know, market economies are governed by laws of nature, those laws of nature are just the, like, environmental laws collapse. Of nature. <laughs> because it is regulated by environmental collapse. <laughs> right. I mean, he, he didn't understand it in that way, of course. And so the way that, you know, Adam Smith kind of sets it up for other people to think about it, though, is yeah, that there is some kind of like godlike apparatus operating the economy. And unfortunately, the way that he described it, it's kind of like with the God particle, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's always great to like base any system off of a theoretical variable. Yeah. And the assumption of some like mysterious power. Yeah. Right? That's totally a great way to design a system. I'm pretty sure they teach that in engineering school. You know? In engineering school, you need to focus on the thing that you can't prove. What Adam Smith is known for is his notion of the wealth of nations. That was the book, right? The yeah. wealth of nations. Why are some nations wealthy? If you can't just say, well, crimes against humanity, obviously. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because that'd be a pretty short book. No one would buy that. Some of this stuff is valuable, at least for understanding the way these more abstract systems of economies interact with each other. As as all of us, again, are just apes moving shit around, Right. So basically what Smith says is that the wealth of a nation emerges from the labor of its people efficiently organized via societal divisions and using the accumulated capital of the state and lands. So let me put that in layman's terms. It's a, from blah, how blah, much blah, work blah. its My people name do. Is Joseph Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> it's from basically how 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 efficiently its people work and how many resources there are for them to work with. Yes, as seen in the Congo. Right. And so if you if you have a set amount of people, you only have all the people in Belgium, which is like seven people in like 1820. You can become an immensely wealthy nation by just going to the Congo and taking all their stuff. Yeah, stealing shit. Right. Then you've accumulated capital in term in terms of lands and material wealth from somewhere else yeah. but you're still running it through belgium right isn't it like an extra kind of extra twisted that that's called primitive accumulation when like you uh <laughs> like in order to do that you have to convince everyone that those people are primitives <laughs> and like not worthy of the same like they're not human yeah well so what what's the value for us in terms of adam smith's theory of the wealth of nations well basically it's that the value of something is determined by its production costs and we might say that seems pretty obvious to us but in fact that's not even the way most most value is is that judged is not anymore. what anything that, that you buy that's kind of a quaint understanding 
That is not how anything you right. buy is priced. <laughs> yeah, definitely that, not. He doesn't talk um, about loss leaders. He doesn't talk about, like, you know, De Beers. Um, right. <laughs> but I think, though, that it is a good way of understanding how value maybe should be, like, allocated. In yeah. terms of, if we're going to, like, tie things to real-world implications well, Adam for Smith like, climate change. Well, Adam Smith was not change, an economist, though. He was a... He was, a political... he was one of those people who didn't understand economics. And right. so he set out to understand economics and he wrote The Wealth of Nations. Right. And mainly, most of the people who we're going to talk about today are that type of person. They're all Jareds, basically. Oh, God. Um, in one sense or another. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing, though. What we just identified is true, that value is different than price. And this was true even in Adam Smith's times. So Adam Smith would say that the way that things are priced and the way that things are valued reflects your labor. Basically, it's all about that material exchange of energy within the human person. The price of a good reflects the distribution of the actual material and the productive forces that went into the good. The way things are priced, though, is essentially how much labor you're willing to sacrifice to pay for it. And that that labor you expend is basically the medium of exchange. And so this is where Marx jumps off the bus, basically. Because we've now established that external controls can impose limits on the activity of the system. Before we get done talking about uh, Adam Smith, uh, we should maybe mention yeah. that he was like extremely against the rentier class. The rentier class? Yeah, people that collect rent. Uh, he basically accurately thought that it was a drain on the economy. Yeah, and Smith looked at wealth in three, three different senses. He looked at it as occurring in, ter- in forms of labor, rent, and profit. And yeah, he thought that the rentier class, as Jared described it, the people who rent property, buy property just to rent it. Income gain not by labor, but by ownership. He was not a fan, but he recognized that as a huge part of the economy, right? But he also still thought that like profit as a motive, right? A profit motive was something that like spurred, you know, production. That part of the cost of something is the profit which is essentially labor saved, right? That's it's energy that you get that you don't have to work for. Basically what we've kind of established is why, you know, Marx said, forget about rent and profit, just look at labor. And, you know, no one was talking about like ecosystem value at this time. That was like light years beyond where these people were at. But the value of an object should come from how much labor, how much human labor went into it, including the labor used to develop the capital used within it. So, you know, this is why Marxists kind of use this as a jumping off point for basically like class struggle. The way the exchange occurs is that someone gets fucked over and it's always the the laborer, right? Not the person employing the laborer. There's going to be a stretch where I don't talk oh, much shit. because I couldn't really hear what you were saying. Oh, my bad, dude. But it's all good. It seems like okay, it's... Okay, are we smooth? Yeah, it seems like it worked itself out. All right. So, yeah, we'll slug on to neoclassical economics now, which is basically what we have. That's This is where we're still at, right? 
which has to do with utility theory and demand theory, two things that we've also already talked about a little bit. And uh, the two main British guys, again, who were kind of responsible for this were Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, who were the utilitarians. Wasn't uh, Ebenezer Scrooge like based on Mill? Or was it? Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah. Was it or was it Carnegie? I think it was kind of like a fusion of the two characters. Okay. Um, but and, it, and that's actually a good a good timeline because where neoclassical economic theory is coming around is now in the later part of the 19th century around the Industrial Revolution. But critically, during the basically rise of social democracy and workers yeah. movements in Europe well, and America. The rate of profit, as it always does, had declined. So uh, stuff started happening. Well, it's really interesting that these guys started talking about utilitarianism, which is doing the things that has the greatest good, wink, wink, for the greatest number of yeah. people, as all of these laborers were going on strike and demanding higher wages. Yeah, well, we got too many uh, <laughs> useless mouths to feed, so... Yeah, and that was the thing. It's like they had, like, poor houses. Like, if you were so poor you couldn't, like, do anything, you were basically just, like, enslaved, right? Yeah. Like, they just, like, throw you in a shack and put you to work. And so it was It was basically a time when now the ruling ideology, the way the economic theory is formulated, shifted from being to justify, you know, the rampant horror of colonialism to the rampant horror of industrialism, right? And I just want to make a, a short aside. We talked about like Adam Smith and Ricardo and Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. So I have a Bachelor of Arts degree in English Literature. And I actually went through like the honors program while I was doing that. Oh, so you've read, and a I had to read of all of these assholes. I've, dude, I've read Dickens. I've read like the Russians, but I had to read all these guys. Oh, like, really? When I, dude, I took a c- courses on human philosophy, and oh, I had shit. to read all of this shit. Fuck! I just like chose to read some of this, and it's like just drivel half of it. It just blows my mind because I think it explains why I was such a little brain lord. I was like a little centrist brain lord for like three years after college. Oh, you thought you were like super smart and shit? Well, you probably remember I had a subscription to The Economist. Yeah. I can't even believe that was me. Like, I don't know. You like recommended it to me a couple times and I was like, yeah, I don't know. It seems pretty stupid. Oh, it's it's <laughs> trash. It's absolute trash, man. Dude, have you listened to the, like, uh, citations needed to that episode on, like, the history of The Economist? And it's just like, holy shit. The stuff they used to say in the 1800s was fucking wild. But, man, it just blows my mind because people talk about, you know, like, Jordan Peterson talks about college being, like, this, you know, breeding ground for the radical left. I wish. And what do they have me doing? Like, I'm, I'm like a... A young, like disaffected, you know, uh, potential class warrior, and they're like, "Okay, let's have you read, you know, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, and turn you into a nice, like, neoliberal banker." Well, they got to do that. Like... I mean, people like you give like the FBI a reason to exist. <laughs> you know, like Man. the CIA fucking made Ted Kaczynski. They fucked his brain up with a bunch of acid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it gives them something to do. They got to they got to do something exactly. with all that money. Mm-hmm. But I, I just I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I got a little bit brainwashed by reading this stuff. And I look well, back on it now and I find it laughable. You, 
you hadn't realized that everyone's full of shit. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you who I definitely didn't read during college was like Marx or Adorno or Kropotkin. Oh, no. Those. Anything vaguely associated with anarchism or leftism. Who were people who were writing at the same time, who were contemporaries of these assholes. Yeah. Right. And much smarter. Much, much more talented (laughs) and capable than them. I mean, in my opinion. And I'm definitely doing a poor job of like explaining, you know, how Marx kind of like builds labor theory of value, which is actually a phrase he never even used. He never even used the phrase labor theory of value. That's just kind of what got imprinted on it afterwards. Yeah, well, the fucking invisible hand got imprinted on Adam Smith and he basically said the opposite of what everyone thinks it means. Right. Yeah. And to Marx, he was working in the tradition of Adam Smith. He was saying, yes, it's all about labor. Yes, it's all about how much energy you, the human ape, is using. That's the exchange value. And as such, that's the only thing we should care about. These guys still, they're not economists. They are political economy studiers or whatever. Right. Which is like a different thing, sort of. Well, it's basically political economics is like, how does it play out in reality? Yeah. And that's why these guys are trying to explain it. Uh, and Marx was doing the same thing. He was just trying to explain economics. He was doing it a little better than some people. So yeah, James was a little brain lord for a few years after college and thought that utilitarianism was a real good thing, but it isn't. <laughs> Basically, what is utilitarianism? It's the greatest happiness principle. Whatever will bring the most physical good, the most like material good for the greatest number of people which for the English aristocracy of the late 19th century was, of course, free markets and expanded colonialism. And that's obviously true. I mean, the more shit people have, the happier they are. That's why hoarders are very happy people. To the extent that the English were willing to protect it, they were like sending Winston Churchill to, uh, what was it, Sedan, like the Battle of Omdurman? Where they were just like, you know, we have got the Maxim gun and just like mowing down thousands of tribal warriors. Yeah, let's test this bitch out. Yeah, they just wanted to protect their investments, though. That was the thing. And to them, it was still utilitarianism. You commit genocide in the Belgian Congo because you're still doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Because they're not people. Well, but first got to get your nephew a job like writing about how they're not actually people. They're actually animals. Well, right. And that's, I mean, that type of attitude was extremely pervasive throughout like these, these guys who we're talking about. Yeah. Because people's nephews were writing puff pieces about why exterminating these people is actually cool and good and necessary. It sounds like you're joking, but oh, does you, it? there's so many <laughs> there to, to a 21st century person that would sound like you're joking, but that's all over the 19th century. Oh yeah. I mean, no, the, America more than any other place. I'm a hundred percent serious about what I'm saying right now. Yeah, so utilitarianism as it plays out is usually, you know, pretty horrific, genocide, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but again, let's like look at the 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 theory within within this prism that people were trying to justify their actions, which is that of economic utility, and this is an important like transition from saying that the 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 price cost of something that we assume represents value is dependent upon how it's produced because economic utility is about the perceived usefulness of an item. It's kind of like the, the, the Netflix show, um, Mari Kondo, um, tidying up 
where she like says like hold this this t-shirt does it make you happy if it costs nine dollars and you're like i don't know and then she's like if it's made in a sweatshop in indonesia by children and it costs three dollars will it make you happy and then you say i think that'll make me happy fuck yeah that's economic utility right there yeah. and that's cheaper. that's why now you can do shit like you know yeah outsourcing that's economic you utility. Tell me I get three shirts instead of one yeah, you can get three shirts for $5 if we move this factory from Georgia to Micronesia. What are we even talking about this for? You should have done this last week. <laughs> so basically now, value, in the way that we think about value, not just for material goods, but for all things, environmental stuff as well, value is about the demand for and perceived utility of the resources. How much do you need that clean water from that wetland? How useful is it really? Well, also, do you have any money at all? Because if you don't, it doesn't fucking matter. Right. (laughs) You don't show up on the demand side if you don't have any money. Right. So now price reflects a perception of value. It's perceived utility and not actual economic production. As you said earlier, Jared, they're not saying like we're going to charge people $40,000 for this vehicle because it costs $38,000 to make. No, because it'll make you happy. Yeah, we're going to charge $40,000 because that's what will make you happy. And $42,000 will make you not happy. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, maybe it was if we told you that it was $45,000, but now there's a $3,000 rebate, then you might. And basically what this also represents is, as I said... The, the capitalists will apply the same logic, the perception of value to their own laborers, right? The capitalist knows what's best for labor because the capitalist understands the market. It's like your boss says, like, I'm out there having to wheel and deal and build a business out of the ground, you whippersnapper. And you're trying to, you're trying to represent your own, your own interest in this scenario. Like, obviously God, I'm right, right because I, I have the money. <laughs> Yeah, well, I got the skills and the labor, so if you want that to keep showing up, you better act at least a little bit right. Well, and it's all about his his perceived value versus your perceived value in terms of that labor exchange, right? And that's why, again, Marx would say, hey, that's it. It's just labor. Like, the the margin, the profit, this this shouldn't even be owned by one person. Like, all the people who are working for this company should own this company. Yeah, definitely. The company would run better. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> you know, that's why, like, that's why it sucks so bad to be a manager because, like, why would anyone be that invested in this? Right. You know, it's not like they have any control. If shit starts going bad and we like have to start laying people off and they have no ability to try and do anything, why? Who, right. Who cares? You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're owner of your company is always pissing you off every time you see him you might start to care a little less but all right so let's just linger a little bit longer on this idea of perceived demand and utility that as goods and wetlands are produced now we're concerned with how much demand there is for those services and those values and so at what point exactly utility exists And at what point exactly value is perceived, 
is something that we can haggle over and bet on. And that's how you get into mitigation banking and futures markets and all this other dumb bullshit is because of this marginal theory. Again, why that exists, I have no idea, to be honest, except just because it facilitates the flow of money right now versus six months from now. Well, and gambling's fun. I mean, I think that's it. Like, but of course, <laughs> I know that gambling's fun. But dude, if you type in to Google, because I, I did this, I tried this. Futures markets should not exist. There are you get no results. Well, duh, it's Google. <laughs> yeah, they run. They they're on the futures market, right? Like they have <laughs> yeah. to have assets in there. They're not going to help you find this out. No. Because now we've decided that margins have something to do with whether or not something is useful or not, and that value can exist in different states at different times, you just have created the whole financial sector now. You basically yeah. you just have you you can have people haggling about bullshit about haggling about bullshit about haggling about bullshit about haggling about bullshit. Yeah. Like that's what like subprime mortgages are, basically, right? Like they get packaged up and then sold off 16 different times and 16 different levels to different financial firms because they think they might be able to make some marginal amount of money on it yeah. in two years yeah they're all gambling and yeah trying to explain it is so frustrating we should just say what you say we should just be like it's gambling yeah, well like you it's say you do like the book learning part of it i have like an intuitive reaction to things it's fucking gambling Right. <laughs> I know I know how to gamble and this sounds like they figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> the stock market is I mean there there is some like sense of like moving real world assets around the world oh, yeah. where the stock market makes sense, right? Yeah. 100%. Like you got to get some fucking, you know, tin pot iron from China over to Ohio or something to smelt it. Yeah. So some might say it's the most dangerous gambling because you're you're gambling with people's lives at that point. Yeah, you are. You totally are. Yeah. Oh, does that sound like I'm joking again? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) No, I'm being serious. It's just so absurd that I can't say it with like a straight face. Like you know what I mean? Like Yeah, yeah. It's both true and insane. Alright, so we've basically now covered like classical economics and how it got shoved into neoclassical economics right and i just want to like try and pin this in some like biological material understanding so back when value was related to the amount of production that went into a a product or a resource right that's basically a feed forward control because there are external constraints on the system Like, if you want to grow indefinitely, you have to go do some colonialism, right? Otherwise, you have to start talking about how resources are allocated in your society and who gets what and why. America had lots of room to go do colonialism, so those other questions were basically delayed 40 or 50 years. Well, I mean, they had the most room to do it. That's why we're now the world reserve currency. Exactly. That's why we got to... That's why we got to choose when to enter World War II. Exactly. Exactly, yes. It's a perfect example of, the, of what we're talking about. <laughs> I don't about. know anything about um, <laughs> but But regardless, though, even with you know stuff like colonialism, that's still a feed-forward control. Because just thinking about what direction you're moving and how energy is being expended. 
right? If you want to expand, you're going to meet external constraints. And if you want to, if you want to overcome those external constraints, you have to go other places and find other things, right? Yeah, this system but, is like fungi or like cancer. Right, but it only expands if it has the resources to expand. Right, but the expansion and the consumption of resources is very harmful to whatever it is taking that from. You're you're totally right. But the reason that it's gotten way, way worse in the last hundred years is because of that neoclassical economic move, where now, because value... Because the way that we ascribe value to objects is no longer about the real world material production of, of goods and your labor, but is instead about perceived utility, fairyland stuff. Yeah. Uh, we now have basically a feedbackward control to use receptor talk. Yeah, well, a change in the DNA of the economy has right. led the expansion to be even more efficient. To put it in economic lingo, demand for the products of the system are fed back into the system as inputs for further production. Ergo, the activity of the system is determined by how productive it is. Yeah. An awesome thing in like a scarce resource environment. But that's why you have an economic recession every 10 to 15 years for the last 150 years. I think it's more like seven years on average, isn't it? But it's it's a cycle, right? Yeah. Yeah, you have regular economic downturns because you are on a feedbackward control. Production is determined by production. And it's also because this type of thing assumes a zero-sum game. It basically is assuming that there aren't external constraints that you that you will just you won't have to reach. And that establishes those three central assumptions that we kind of began this episode with compostman of history and fantasy land so to summarize a little bit the two central reasons that neoclassical economic theory doesn't work is because people are stupid and shouldn't be expected to act in rational ways and because resources are limited and external constraints will impose themselves on growth i don't even think that people are stupid is a thing just people don't act rationally yeah people don't act in rational ways yeah they don't naturally act that way and the fact that they're expected to is why everyone's depressed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. You know, what that necessitates taking another look at idealism and materialism, which is what we talked about in our first anti-ENV 101 episode as well. Because basically the way economics works now and the way it is taught in universities is basically just arcane nonsense wrapped in self-serving bullshit. And it exists outside of a material context. It's just an idealized abstraction. It's basically a phantasm, just a big lie that everyone agrees to play by. Well, I mean, as far as they are able to agree, most people right. most people don't really have the ability to disagree meaningfully. Yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. We have to play by it because if we don't, then we're, you know, yeah. well, we're destitute. You can right? believe you you're can believe what fucked. you want. That's the system we're dealing with here. Right. Right. So just to review a little bit, idealism 
is this idea that physical reality is governed by a set of ideas constructed by human consciousness. So, yeah, an example would be to say, you're not poor, you're just economically depressed, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's idealism. Yeah. It's probably accurate. I mean. or, or that money has value. Like that's an idealized abstraction is that, you know, you can have, you can have a bank account. There's no physical object there, but that number can be manifest into real material things. Right. That's, that's an, that's idealism. Money's like Santa Claus. He, he exists if you just believe. Yeah. And if you don't believe, then you start to have problems. (laughs) Oh yeah. Big problems. Because like you said, you get physically, you like physically get depressed because once you understand that you've been just lied to all the time and that the world that exists around you is just like a collective nightmare that everyone is dreaming at the same time. Well, God gets angry when you stop believing in him and money is our God. So, so we're materialists, right? Yeah. We say that matter is the fundamental essence of nature. All this idea shit is just bullshit. There is no invisible hand. There's just like carbon and nitrogen moving around, right? So the challenge for the materialist is to basically come up with a better explanation. To fuse principles of ethics and economics with biology and ecology. Which I've kind of tried to do by talking a little bit about like material economics, right? And that profit maximization, unlimited surplus, and unlimited growth is actually not a good thing. Because it'll just kill you. Well, I mean, it's not even possible. Yeah. (laughs) But people don't even remember what happened seven years ago, it seems like. Dude, I don't even remember (laughs) what happened like three weeks ago, so I can't really be talking shit on that. But yeah, Yeah, it's not a great thing. Yeah, but I guess if we're going to like try and be a little bit optimistic about it. I mean, I, think I remember it, seven years ago. It was awful. Like I was talking to um, a friend of ours last night and we were talking about how South Dakota a few years ago. I said that, OK, South Dakota legalized weed by popular vote. Oh, they're going to overturn that in the courts. Yeah, I said the state legislature can just overturn it yeah because that's what they, they did on that anti-corruption it. bill like two years ago everybody was pissed but it yeah. still happened that's and what i said no one remembers this no one fucking remembers yeah. that they did that the corrupt south dakota politicians just did a corruption on the anti-corruption popular vote yeah <laughs> and this one isn't even talking about corruption so they're damn sure gonna do it on this one yeah and and again that happened like three years ago and people don't even remember that yeah uh, I'm just amazed. You know what? I want to know what's wrong with us that we do remember things like that. Dude, it's because we like broke out of the the phantasm to an extent, right? I like suppose. we're we're out here in the material world now. Yeah. We are living in the material world and we're material girls. Yeah, dude, Madonna is starting to grow on me. <laughs> what is Madonna up to in Indonesia is what I want to know. <laughs> it's probably nothing. But yeah, I think that the reason we have some, like, fuck, probably the reason that we are even able to, like, talk about Adam Smith and Ricardo and Bentham and Mill is because we are, like, in that depressive meta state where we've, like, decided that we're going to try and figure things out and 
come to these shitty conclusions, right? Is that just it? Like, I had a terrible childhood, so I needed to make sense of the world, and now I do this podcast? I mean, maybe. <laughs> and then I think that because you have a sense of class solidarity, I think that's kind of why your politics are what you are. I, this might piss people off, but I was, like, basically a slave for the first, like, 12 years of my life, so... If we're trying to think about idealism and materialism as it relates to economics and what's what's a better way to do economics, right, than what we're doing right now, which obviously doesn't work. I think that the parable of the compost bin and the trash can is useful. So the question, what happens when we throw things away? Uh, it disappears. Uh, actually, it doesn't. Well, that's a that's a popular myth. I don't, they would like I don't you to see believe. it anymore, though. <laughs> uh, sometimes you got to stop watching documentaries, though, because you might like throw your trash out. And then like two years later, you listen to David Attenborough talk about the ocean and then you see a trash bag <laughs> floating around. That's awkward. That's real awkward. <laughs> it's like got your name on it. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. OK. <laughs> Do you remember that story from like a couple years ago where some like plumbing company sold a toyota pickup and it like ended up in syria as like an isis pickup and the dudes <laughs> the dude's like business name was still on the side of this pickup that was flying isis flags and this this dude like i'm pretty sure it was in texas he was getting like death threats for people in his town because they they thought he like donated his pickup to isis and was supporting them <laughs> that shit like uh when stuff like that happens it makes me so happy hey hey hold on hold on dude let me look back at my hey individuals act independently on the basis of full and relevant information with choices that can be associated with real values so he should have been he should have known that when he sold that toyota pickup there was a chance it could fall into the hands of isis (laughs) that's that's what I think about every time I sell anything. Like, man. <laughs> Hopefully this can't be traced back to me. ISIS might get a hold of it. All right. So, yeah. When you take out the trash, you pay a fee to your city every month. And all your various waste products are collected and taken to a dump somewhere far away from the city. Or you burn it in your backyard. Or you throw it in a ditch. Whether you take it out or burn it or throw it in the ditch, it's going to slowly break down over a thousand years. If you burn it, it's just going to be in the air for a thousand years, right? It doesn't fucking matter what you do. It still continues to exist in a material sense. Whether or not we understand that, that it's going to the dump and sitting there or being in the ditch or in the air, totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter if we understand what happens to it. In fact, most of us pay a fee to our city so we don't have to think about that fact. So the space between the material relations of our consumption and our waste, as we use things and then cast them aside, that's filled in by social abstraction. So let's compare that with the compost bin. Basically, you collect your waste in your kitchen and it smells and sometimes you collect waste from strangers and your neighbors. Periodically, you add the waste to a pile in your yard, and you spray it with a hose, and you turn it with a pitchfork. Or you don't. I mean, you just let it sit there. You just let it sit there, too. But um, sometimes squirrels will come around, and they'll root around in it. 
And you might root around in it to look for fishing worms as well. Yeah. And then when the compost is finished breaking down, you add it to your garden. And then eventually you die and you get added to the compost. Yeah. Or your friend's compost bin. I mean, you know. Yeah. You don't really need the compost bin anymore after you die. That's a good point. That's right. With the compost pile, what we have is the material world. You're left with just the material products of your waste. Do you, What do you think, Jared? Am I bullshitting here? I don't think so. I mean, one type of waste is like regenerative and can build new things. And there's an, other types of waste that destroy other things. Right. And we're, we're good at generating the latter. But what I'm saying, though, is if you compost, if you get to that base level of composting, yeah. then you're probably more receptive to the idea that your waste has real-world implication. I mean, yeah, because Whether it's, or not you're throwing it away or composting. Because it's directly benefiting you if you know what you're doing. In that instance, it is, right. And so, in a real physical sense, the value of your compost is determined by how much work you put into it. Whereas the value of the trash can is determined by social abstraction. And putting the least amount of time in. But luckily, waste doesn't exist in neoclassical economics. So you don't have anything to worry about. When in actuality, you're just leaving trash everywhere because we live in one planet. It's a closed system. And the trash is going to pile up, right? Whether it's in the air or in the water or in landfills, if you just keep generating trash all the time you're just gonna live in a world of trash yeah isn't it like a concern that there's so much fucking space trash like where we put things up into orbit that eventually it's going to be a problem right yeah it is it is totally and like um, elon musk it already elon is musk fucking shot a car up there just because lol and it's <laughs> like thanks dude <laughs> yeah man some people don't have a house and i'm just gonna shoot this car into the fucking space yeah, so that's a good idea, right? <laughs> that's, that generates real value. Well, that's all he has is good ideas. Honestly, it did generate good value because it like indoctrinated even more people into fucking seeing epic fucking tech space bro shooting the car into space. Yeah. Um, so we, we mentioned feedback and feed forward control systems as well earlier. And I think we can see another example of that with the compost bin and the trash can. Because every time you empty the trash can, you're basically clearing it out for your continued production of waste, right? Basically, it only serves to amplify your consumption. The only limit is how big your trash can is, right? Whereas with the compost pile, like, now you have a feed-forward system that's constantly imposing external constraints. Like, how much organic matter can you accrue? How often can you turn it? Do you have time to turn it at all? Or are you going to have to do the lazy pile like Jared said? How big's your garden? Can you use all that compost? That's a feed-forward system with external constraints regulating the activity of your compost pile. And you can actually watch that activity in a real sense if you put a thermometer into it, right? That's metabolism. So why talk about this shit in terms of economics? Yeah, James, right? why? Well... The whole problem with like modern economics right now is that exergonic reactions that release energy into the environment are no longer coupled to endergonic reactions that build things. 
in a very real sense, people are just burning fossil fuels constantly all the time to generate numbers on bank accounts. So you're using material waste to build immaterial idea fantasy land wealth. And you're just going to keep doing that until you wreck the fucking world. Yeah, or because until profit you, needs to be maximized. Or until you like I don't know, own Bolivia. <laughs> well, but then you have to go to Pandora, right? Like it's always the next thing. You're all yeah. you're always going to be looking for the next thing then. Totally. I mean, that's yeah. That's uh that can't not happen in this system. I think I lost you for a second there, Jared. Oh, I've been losing you off and on. We had a little bit of a choppy stream tonight. So, in a real sense, our economic activity is tied to all of these energy releasing processes that don't build anything. <laughs> and that's called that's called efficiency. <laughs> and so I think the question is is like how do we as a species learn to be more like plants? How do we increase our endergonic processes? Cuz like with the compost, you're always looking to the next step. It's not like you're just throwing anything away ever. It's a constant transition of real matter from yes. one state to another that you're using all the time. This is when we invite people to the poison path, because if you let the plants talk to you, they will tell you how to do things. <laughs> you got to learn to be a plant, dude. Yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, listener, listen to the plants. And the fungi. And the fungi. Fungi, yeah, they're good. They're fine. Yeah. They're they're composters and animals. Honestly, just stop listening to humans. Oh fucking! Listen humans. to Terrible. listen to everything else. You've listened to humans your whole life. Just turn them off for a little while. See what's going on outside of the human world. Yeah. So what's what's the problem? It's that no one's going to pay you to compost, Jared. Right? Who's going to pay you to garden? Well, I don't know. It depends on how good I can use that compost to grow good food. I mean, you're absolutely right, but if you're going to do that and be viable in our crazy economic system, then, well, you just can't, right? Probably like, not. I'd have to run to Canada. At least there you have health care. Right. So, yeah, I, I think that in terms of economics, you have to build some kind of like metabolic economic system. You have to like build a system where endergonic processes, yeah. things that build things are valued and I, I would envision like an economic system where if you just like stay home and do nothing, you're making money because you're not like out there polluting. Yeah. And, you know, you're only spending money when you're polluting. And if you're growing things, if you're composting, if you're just hanging out at home playing PS5 or whatever, like fine, you're you're, you're racking in your basic income. I mean, well, I think you just got all of the Proud Boys and incels and stuff, so... <laughs> with you can just stay home and play ps5 yeah, you're gonna change some lines here i mean dude how many i'm just i'm serious how many societal issues would be greatly alleviated if people could just stay home and play ps5 um societal issues probably quite a bit we'd probably have like a massive <laughs> health problem on our hands in 15 years <laughs> we'd just be the new we'd turn into wally <laughs> Like everyone's <laughs> indoors, not watching all the trash pile up, also getting fatter. <laughs> I mean, maybe not, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm usually not my healthiest self when I'm playing lots of video games. <laughs> all right. But so if that's the goal, if the goal is to like eliminate human labor that's exploited. Well, that's to the that's point not that the goal. 
Well, that's but never is, been the, that goal. Be the goal. But shouldn't that be the goal, though, is so that you never have to work? That nothing you ever do feels like work? <sighs> never have to work? Yeah, totally. I mean, I work all the time doing things myself that could be considered labor, but like... Well, yeah, yeah. that all labor is for your own yeah. personal Honestly, the more balance. I have to work for not myself, the more likely I am to just fucking sit on the couch and watch television and not feel good and all that shit. Right, if you only had to stay home and play PS5, you'd probably actually spend a lot of time outside doing stuff. Oh yeah, 100%. I done. wouldn't touch, I yeah. wouldn't even buy the PS5. I'd just go outside all the time. <laughs> but that's just me. You'd just spend all your time like hiking and camping and shit. Yeah, yeah. unless you were going to give me a PS5, then I would sell that and use it to fund all that other stuff you were talking about. Unfortunately, you know, we're not there yet. We're not at that stage. And so, <laughs> well, if we're going to ask ourselves even... how we get there... We're not even talking about how we get there. I mean, like, well, in terms of, you know, who's coming up with ideas about how to do it, I'll reference back to that guy who jumped off the bus way back when we were talking about classical economics and Adam Smith, one um, Karl Marx, I believe his name was. Dun, dun, dun. And killer of a hundred million people, Karl <laughs> Marx. Why do you hate humanity, you dirty red son of a bitch who was actually German and lived in England for most of his life and corresponded with Abraham Lincoln? And I don't know. That song kind of broke down. And Charles Darwin. and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that guy. That's him. He at least did kind of provide what I think is as close as you can come to something that unifies some theory of social science with economics and ethics and right? vampires yeah we're what what did they call them oh what's the the vampire castle right because we're all in the vampire castle oh no i should know this mark fisher mark fisher yeah is that what you were referring to or not no mark just talks about like werewolves and vampires and like fucking shakespeare and shit well, yeah, he was a fun dude. Yeah, he he uh, knew how to be entertaining. Yeah, there at you times. go. Economics <laughs> might be boring as fuck. Political economy, pretty interesting. Yeah, political Marx economy was a great actually, fucking... actually makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> Marx was fucking interesting. Yeah, I mean Adam Smith's pretty interesting too. He's wrong about a lot of stuff, but like, yeah. So we'll talk about how Marx basically looked at integrating things like ethics and biology economics and history and basically kind of like gave us a dialectical way of thinking about materialism and what he called dialectical materialism sometimes that's kind of used synonymously with historical materialism another term that we used on this show a lot and that's what we'll talk about whenever we touch back on anti-environmental 101 because frankly, I'm I'm hopped up to do some more Alamo stuff. Yeah, me I'm too. I'm excited. But I, I really enjoyed putting this together because it's good to like try and pin down your own like thoughts and like vibes on a matter. Oh yeah. And economics is so fucking confusing. Totally. Especially if you're just trying to write about it though. I don't know. I feel like it's easier to understand if you're like talking to somebody else about it and like I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very abstract it's just incredibly dense yeah and it's just to justify colonialism that's it yeah you know but no one tells you that right you have to like constantly remind it remind yourself of it like who's getting fucked over here again why does this all yeah. like what's the justification 
why the hell is this guy talking so much about this? Yeah. It takes you 700 pages to basically tell you that if you want nice things, slavery is going to have to be a thing, right? You're not going to see it, and you're probably not going to hear about it most days, but it's going to be going on, and it's actually cool and and good. (laughs) And, like, if labor, rent, and profit are all separate things, but all things boil back down to labor, but there's labor that goes into rent and labor that goes into profit, why don't you just go with labor? Like, I don't know. That sounds hard. That's why I think just keeping it biological and thinking about like metabolic economics, like you're just trying to ride that, that cusp. You don't want to use too much. You don't want to get too little. Like Ronnie James Dio said, ride the tiger, baby. Fucking right. Yeah. (laughs) Another tie in with our last episode. He called it. That's what, that's dude. Ronnie James Dio. Dio nomics. We're we're coining it right now. Dio nomics. You got to ride the tiger. You, you can't be like maximizing profit, you dumb fuck. <laughs> well, this has been a this has been like a fun and kind of like exploratory episode, I think. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah. All right, so we're talking about the Alamo next time though. Yep. All right. It's, it's Alamo. I'm excited. All right. So that's why (laughs) compost basically is the answer to modern economic problems. And if we just had more compost on everything, then we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now. Uh, I don't know. Any final thoughts, Jared? Well, when you got compost (laughs) on a bagel, you can have compost anytime. And uh, (laughs) man, I don't know. Don't listen to anybody that like tries telling you that they know a bunch about economics and try to like explain shit to you because like usually they're the biggest idiots. Yeah. They're about to sell you an investment. Yeah. (laughs) Compostman of history university is actually taking investors right now. If you buy a a building for compostman of history university, we will emblazon your name or organization's logo on a plaque and we will put it somewhere in that building. And the building will be a five by six shed on compost acres. And we will spread word of your triumph far and wide for many generations. Basically, don't listen to anything commercials tell you. We've been the compost bin of history. I've been James. That's Uh, been Jared. I've been Jared. (laughs) Eating on, eating on microphone again. All right. Well, yeah. Um, I think that was good, man. All right. I think so too. It was fun at least. Yeah. You know, I don't really care if it's good. It was fun. So it's probably good. I think people will learn something from it. Yeah. Maybe. I think that's. <laughs> or just be like, what the are way. these nutters on about? Or they'll unlearn something from it. Maybe. Well, usually that's the most valuable learning is unlearning shit. Such a lot of things. 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 Such a l
for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a... What day is this? Well, I do work, sir. So if you don't mind... Well, I do mind. Uh, the dude minds. This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. I mean, your wife owes my... My wife is not the issue here! I hope that someday my wife will learn to live on her allowance, which is ample. But if she does not, that is her problem, not mine. Just as the rug is your problem, just as every bum's lot in life is his own responsibility, regardless of who he chooses to blame. I didn't blame anyone for the loss of my legs. Some Chinaman took them from me in Korea, but I went out and achieved anyway. <laughs> I cannot solve your problem, sir. Only you can. Oh, fuck it. Oh, fuck it. Yes, that's your answer. That's your answer to everything. Tattoo it on your forehead. Your revolution is over, Mr. Lebowski. Condolences. The bomb's lost. My advice to you is to do what your parents did. Get a job, sir. The bombs will always lose. Do you hear me, Lebowski? The bombs will always lose. How was your meeting, Mr. Lebowski? Okay. The old man told me to take any rug in the house. <laughs> 